Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate how everything, simply everything you could possibly think of, has its own history, like stockings, mince pies and logs. Do you know, I have a Neolithic uh, mince pie story for you, Sam, in a little bit, but we could also do toys, joys and ploys, or we could do a slight change here, cake snowflakes and awake in other words you are totally unable to fall asleep at christmas however that is to monstrously digress which we don't want to do when we're in such festive moves because we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways who knew for example sam willis who knew that the history of cliques is in fact all about factions at the court of Henry VIII, the rise and fall of Anne Boleyn. It's about the cabal ministry of Charles II. It's about the magic circle, including a magic teapot that will produce any beverage that you like. It's also all about 20th century US pop culture and high schools. It's about conspiracy theories and the French Revolution. Who knew also, Sam Willis, that the history of the bottom, yes, the bottom does have a history, (laughs) is in fact all about fashion and femininity, masculinity and political protest, cycling technology, the Reformation, political protest and the invention of comfort. (laughs) Did you know that? Of course you did. I did, but I've forgotten it all. It's really refreshing and nice to hear. Um, The Bottom, ladies and gentlemen, is one of our most downloaded episodes. So do make sure you check it out. It's super fun. Yeah, as is Cats, James. So uh, everyone, typical internet stuff, Bottoms and Cats, apparently, is what you guys all like. Um, Let me explain who my co-presenter is. Let me say, if history was a present, not the present, but a present, uh, this man would be the elf of Christmas, wrapping it carefully, so very carefully, to give to another with all of the joy generosity and openness of spirit of a Christmas offering. He's the wise man of Christmas himself, Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. And you may well be wondering who is that unattributed voice so ably helping Daybell co-pilot these episodes. Well, let's just say 
that if he were a Christmas-related historian, he'd only be the ghost of Christmas past and present, St Nicholas and Frosty the Snowman, all wrapped up into one big bundle of festive historical cheer. Yes, you've guessed it, it's the famous historical adventurer, your friend and mine, Dr Sam Willis. <laughs> very good. Thank you very much, and hello, everyone. Um, we're, we're always very excited this time of year, and um, this is a general... Um, a general episode introducing you to the wonderful historical themes of Christmas. Do please go back and um, check out our previous historical episodes. James and I do get overexcited this time of year and usually record an enormous amount of episodes uh, specifically dedicated to themes and crazy unexpected subjects associated with Christmas. Uh, so do check those out. Today we're going to be talking about um, all sorts of things, but more of just a, a general introduction to, to Christmas and how you can think about it. Uh, James, what in inspired you uh, for this episode? I was inspired by all sorts of things. I was inspired by book hunting, as I'm going to talk Mm. a little bit about book hunting, but I wanted to start with a recipe for Neolithic mince pies. And as you said, Sam, we have been doing these episodes for probably five years now, and I was looking at our back catalogue last year, and I think we recorded almost a dozen little mini episodes. <laughs> on Christmas. <laughs> on Christmas, with different sort of Christmas and wintry themes. And oh, increasingly, good. it is difficult to actually think what we haven't done. But today, as I woke up thinking, what am I going to talk about in the podcast today? Having done some some research, of course, but I read in The Guardian a fascinating article um, by Stephen Morris on Neolithic rock cakes. And the clever people at Stonehenge have done some digging around. The archaeologists have found evidence of collecting and cooking hazelnuts, sloes and crab apples, along with other fruits and remnants of charred plant materials. They've discovered this at Durrington Walls, which is a, a settlement oh, yeah. near Stonehenge in about 2500 BC, which is supposed to be where the builders um, lived. And they have made an enormous historical leap at English heritage and argued that, in fact, because it's this time of year, maybe what these engineers were eating was a Neolithic mince pie. <laughs> in fact, they were possibly baked using a flat stone or a ceramic pot heated in in a fire. Um, and they've, they've done all sorts of things saying, actually, at this time of year in midwinter, feasting was really important to builders of Stonehenge, and I'm quoting here. And we have evidence which tells us they ha- that they had access to nutritious food and nuts, and that they may even have made and cooked the recipes. It's a it's sort of a far a far fetched uh, idea, but I love it. And they even supply a recipe. So if you want to know how to make your Neolithic inspired mince pies for six people, uh, follow this recipe. For the pastry, you need two handfuls of Emma flour. That's E M M E R. You need half a handful of hazelnut flour, a knob of lard, which you can swap with vegan lard or some kind of vegetarian uh, product if you're if you're vegetarian. You then need to add a few drops of water, and for the filling, four crab apples or small sour apples, a few blackberries, some sloes, pureed rose hips, about a spoonful, and then a spoonful of honey. Plus, you need a handful of berries crushed hazelnuts and for decoration linseeds and a drizzle of honey 
for the tops. Um, I won't go into the uh, cooking method uh, much as I would love to, uh, because I'm a real foodie, as you might have gathered throughout these episodes. Uh, but if you want to check that out, check it out on The Guardian Online, uh, the Daybell uh, Morning Read, uh, Wednesday, the 1st of December, 2021. A little article by Stephen Morris entitled Rock Cakes? Question mark. Stonehenge builders may have enjoyed mince pies. There is internet <laughs> fodder for you. Clickbait if ever I saw it. Very good. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased you were like a trout rising to that fly. Um, <laughs> I'm just looking back at some of the others. Uh, our Christmas themes are wonderfully. We've done one on carrots, uh, riots, lucky mm. finds, cannibalism, spite and obscenity. All, believe it or not, the most wonderful Christmas themed histories of the unexpected episodes you can go back and check out. Um, I, I thought, James, about the things that make you feel Christmassy and um how you could explore that in a historical way so primarily I was thinking about feeling Christmassy and kind of what that meant in the history of emotions and how you might think about um I don't know the history you'll be better at this than me but the history of generosity or charity or care love um also the sadness and depression associated with Christmas a lot of people feel very lonely and left out um and actually we're doing we're recording an episode on the history of donkeys it's our, our first major Christmas one we're doing uh next uh, recording it after this I'll be talking a little bit about loneliness and depression and the history of donkeys um so I just thought James we'd have a think about how you'd actually get at things like that in in the historical records so questions of like you know let's take generosity and charity what are your thoughts on that? Oh, God, you throw me that as a curveball, Sam Willis. I wasn't well, expecting that. Generosity yeah. and thought. I mean, you could do that through charitable giving. So the history of charities, I think, would be a really good place. I remember hearing a superb lecture uh, by an academic a few years ago connecting Victorian charitable giving to uh, Christmas Carol, Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol, which is sort of, you know, part and part, sort of is the background. Julie Marie Strange uh, from who was at Manchester and I think has moved moved to Durham or somewhere like that. Um, but brilliant historian, you should follow all her stuff. Uh, but she gave a fascinating talk about that. I think you could get it get to it through account books, household account yeah. books, and and giving. Uh, I think you could have a look at charitable funding during this period. If you look at ego documents, you could have a look at it from from that diaries and people recording about them themselves i think i remember us a few years ago talking about queen victoria's christmas at the palace so i think you could get at it you could get at it that way um yeah. um really good thinking and also with things like institutions like the church and, and charities is they're particularly good at record keeping so for historians to look at it you can see often not not only what was um what, what, what aid was given, but the the financial uh, quantities of it, you know, the, the value of it. And also, when you've got something like charity here or carers in particular, you've got two people involved, not well, more than two people, often, uh, you know, an entire business doing the caring for one person who is being cared for. But it also that therefore allows you to have um, so many angles into that experience, whether it's uh, letters or personal diaries or day-to-day you know, -day descriptions of what the job entailed by the carers um also all the bureaucracy associated with the business of the caring and also the person being cared for and all of their correspondence um i remember when my uh my grandfather died and he was in a, in a home 
and you know we cleared out uh, his room after after he'd passed and there was so much material there um from from uh, my generation my 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 kids generations so or his grandkids uh, and also his own um his own generation there was a, a, a large amount of correspondence from um it is a correspondence that had re-begun. Re so w when he'd been friends with people in, in maybe his age, about 40 or 50, um, and then when they were elder and they found themselves invalided or, uh, you know, one way lonely often, um, they started writing again to each other to, to kind of reconnect, which I thought was fascinating. So it's a, a kind of a, a blossoming of, of previous relationships. Um, so anyway, there are. So, uh, just a little thought, James. Yeah, I think we've um, something has good stuff there. Something has just cropped cropped up in my mind one of the things that you could do i don't know how on earth you'd measure it but one of the interesting things to do would be to measure the people who are invited to christmas lunch and i think That's that great. that would get you thinking about bonds between between families meeting up but also not just about the nuclear family meeting but the extended family and also who were the other kinds of guests that you invite so people who are on their own who aren't necessarily family members who you you invite into your home to celebrate Christmas um, because they have nowhere else to go another thing would be the kinds of people who help out at soup kitchens uh, during during Christmas as well I think that would be a really good way of, of looking at that but I think what you do there wouldn't be one main archive for that you'd have to look through a whole sort of series of different sources and so you'd piece it together and it would be very very time consuming but I want to take us in an ent entirely different direction which is about book shopping and one of my favorite traditions at Christmas is I gather together a big pile of Christmas books and I read the same books again year and year after year and I've added a few new ones this year including Nancy Mitford's Christmas Pudding which I'm really looking forward to and I'm reading with my book group uh, David Sedaris's The Santaland Diaries and also a couple of foodie ones so I've got River Cottage Christmas Nigel Slater's Christmas Chronicles and John Baxter's A Paris Christmas which is an extraordinary book where he's a, he marries a, a French woman and then and then is entrusted to make one of their most important feasts of the year which is Christmas uh, so uh, I'm really looking forward to reading that but one of my favorite uh, books to read and I read this religiously every year and I listen to it on tape as well is or now on mp3 uh, on download um, is Charles Dickens's Christmas Carol and I'm normally very low church in the kinds of things that I, in, in the sort of provenance of books, obviously very erudite and highbrow in, in my, my reading, but very low church in how, in what things, in the covers that they come in. But one of the things that I would really like to own is a first edition of Christmas Carol. And this led to me doing some searches on the interweb, which led to the following entry. Uh, with the bookseller Peter Harrington, uh, based in London. And I was struck by the little uh, manuscript inscription on the title page. Uh, and it was, uh, it was signed to Agnes Sarah Lawrence from her affectionate friend Charles Dickens, 22nd of November, 1852. And this is a first authorised collected edition presentation copy uh, inscribed by the author 
uh, on the inserted blank facing frontispiece. So those of you who know your book technology, this is basically on the, the frontispiece opposite where the sort of main uh, title page is. And this woman, uh, Agnes Sarah Lawrence, was born uh, circa 18. 35 um she was young at the time of this this inscription so in her in her teens she was the daughter of one john towers lawrence of balsall heath near birmingham and apparently dickens had been corresponding with her father in february that year about bringing a group of amateur players to birmingham and all of these notes are on the 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 notes uh, at um at the bookseller at Peter Harrington. So this is where I'm getting all of this information from. So Dickens is thinking of bringing a group of amateur players to Birmingham. And then the, ne the, the following Christmas, Dickens goes to Birmingham and gives a three and a half hour reading of A Christmas Carol. And this is one of the ways in which he made his money was by touring around and giving these very sort of famous readings of his work, much like a, a sort of yeah, a book tour nowadays. And what you have is essentially a very uh, elaborate, lavish text that's been that's been um, produced here that he then he then signs uh, and and that um, that is then given to this person. Now, once she's received it, the copy then later goes into the library of a great uh, American collector, uh, Carrie Estelle uh, Doheny. Uh, who lived between 1875 to 1958. And there's a beautiful sort of book label in the front from her library. And she is one of the, represents one of the most important uh, American collectors uh, of, of the period. And when she died, there were about 4,000 rare books and first editions in her collection. So it was an incredible sort of source. And then from there, uh, this then, got into uh, the hands of uh, of these book dealers and it's a tiny little book so it's a it's an octavo which basically means that it's been if you think of a normal piece of paper uh, it's been sort of folded into into eight and then cut and it, it measures 18 centimeters or 180 millimeters by 118 millimeter millimeters uh, there's some sort of damaging on it but do you know what you would pay uh, for this Sam Willis, do you know what no, they are charging I... for this? Well, this is the one reason why I didn't think that I would be able to afford it. This is not a first edition. It is a later edition, but right. it is it is signed £60,000. <laughs> and I did, a, I did a sort of... I went on to Abe Books and I thought, you know, I, I wonder if I could find one that was slightly cheaper. Abe Books, if you haven't got Abe Books in your life, you go and find it immediately. Abe Books... .co.uk. I did a little search for Charles Dickens and A Christmas Carol, and I came up with some first editions. There's one, 1843, which is um, which £57,000. Uh, there was another £30,000, slightly, slightly more affordable, but coming from the coming from the US, £44 shipping. I think if I had a £30,000 book uh, coming to me across the Atlantic, uh, I'd want <laughs> I'd want security coming with it and not a, a £44 free or free shipping. Uh, there's another one. Um, there's another one for £27,500, £34,000, £26,000. You get the you get the sense of this. And this got me thinking about why are these books so expensive? And it's actually, if you look at 
the publication history of Dickens's Christmas Carol. It sells out extremely quickly. There aren't that many that are produced. It sells out quickly, and that means that they're relatively rare, and so they can command great value. And obviously, if it ha also has the author's signature, it, you know, it makes it even more valuable. So it was first published on the 19th of December, 1843. And get this, the first edition had been sold out by Christmas Eve. And by the end of 1844, over 13 editions had been subsequently released. There was also a pirated copy um, that was made which uh, in January 1844. And Dickens basically went through the roof at this, took them to court. The firm went bankrupt and Dickens was left with having to pay the £700 worth of costs. In some ways, the publication of Christmas Carol was something that he needed to do financially because his previous um, his previous novel that was being serialised wasn't doing quite as well. Um, he goes on to write several other uh, Christmas stories, as, 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 as everyone knows. Um, and in 1849, he begins to take it on tour, as I said already. And he undertook 127 performances of it in a sort of roughly 20-year period until 1870, uh, in the year of his death. And as you all know, it has had an incredible um, reception ever since. It's never been out of print, translated into many different languages. It's been adapted into film, stage, opera, all sorts of things. There's uh, Mickey's Christmas Carol. There's the Muppet Christmas Carol. Any number of, 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 any number of, uh, of films of based on Scrooge. So there we are, Sam. That was what got me sort of thinking all Christmassy. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program. 
for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Yeah, very good. Um, I, I love that. The, the, certainly the, the rare books of it. And, um, and I like the sense of everyone going crazy for Dickens um, back when it was published and it is being sold out before Christmas Day. That sounds like a marketing, a marketing ploy to me, whether or not it was, uh, they claimed it was. We should try and get, so, we, sh- we should try and get their people, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> we should, we should. Um, uh, so markets for me, I wanted to talk about markets because in our family, everyone gets very excited when the Christmas market comes on. And that means I have to basically play a, a crepe and churros tax every time I walk past it for both of my kids and it gets ridiculously expensive because as soon as I've bought them a a bag of churros covered in sugar I of course have to buy myself some cider Uh, (laughs) and um, it it gets completely insane the amount of money that I actually spend walking I live right in the middle of town so um, we're constantly walking past the Christmas market so um, kids enormously excited for it and I just had a little think about markets because there are various ways that markets are relevant to Christmas not only because um, because of the time i think it's really interesting with the it's a it's a real kind of coming together and sharing a lovely a lovely atmosphere lovely vibe going on so the one in exeter is in the the big area just outside the open area just outside the cathedral and a couple of points to make here is that um it's a temporary one it's just for a few weeks in christmas and it's hugely popular down here um, but around the world of course there are markets not just christmas markets but there are markets which are equally as as popular but they're permanent and um i think it's a bit mad that you you could have a you could clearly demonstrate that something's a good idea and it works really well but then not do it the rest of the year um, and it made me think about the wonderful markets I've been to around the world, and and also the, the kind of the geography of it's really interesting. Having it in the shadow of Exeter Cathedral, which is now a, a large cleared area, as uh, uh, the kind of the cathedral greens that you'll see all over the country, whether it's Salisbury or York or uh, I don't know the Abbey in St Albans, um, always a big open space because it's been cleared. But of course, you know, back in the Middle Ages, it wouldn't have been like that at all. It would have been, um, you know pretty much crammed with humanity and the sense of of there being temporary or pop-up shops um was was very much the norm so every time you go to a christmas market and you can smell all the bratwurst and the 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 mulling syrups and the mulling wines um it it is it is a bit like a time machine and it really does kind of i think ping you back um many years i mean hundreds of years to a time when people really did enjoy living a life in the in the shadow of these these magnificent medieval buildings now usually uh my first experience of a christmas market is in exeter when it arrives um the last week of november but this year i've been to berlin and now if there's one place in the world that knows how to do a christmas market properly it's berlin and i was there in mid-november and so i got to experience a bit of the christmas market in berlin and i looked into it um the first Christmas market in Berlin, James, this is your period, 1530. Oh, that's early, go. Sam. Isn't it? Isn't it? And um, they've got wonderful records of it and exactly where it was held. So the original one was held in what we now know to be the, the absolute centre of Berlin. So um, uh, yeah, around Brandenburg and down south there towards the, um, towards the island in the, in the middle of the river. 
Um, and if you actually look at the history of the Christmas market in Berlin, of course, it, it changes. It's fascinating. You've got these these brilliant Tudor period. Well, not Tudors for them, but for us. So 16th century Christmas markets. But then um, I found some wonderful descriptions of the Christmas market. Everyone going back to, to having a Christmas market after the chaos of the Second World War. Um, again, held uh, in, in the Lustgarten um, but it was in the in the middle of ruins, and there are some wonderful photographs and wonderful descriptions of people getting back together again and trying to to to, to reclaim something that they knew and loved and identified with history and with stability, which was the Christmas market. So that was 1945. Um, subsequent years, Berlin it has to change again because it's split into two. So you end up with two markets. You've got the West Berlin one. Um, which has a new situation, and it's in East Berlin, which is in the uh, they they maintain the original, the old location, and that that stays until 1974. So um, I think the first point I wanted to make is that um, if you like a Christmas market like me, then you can look at the history of them. Um, it's made me want to explore the history of the Exeter Christmas market. Now I was also down in Cornwall the other weekend, and. Um, came across James one of the most shocking stories I've I've heard in some time. So they're getting ready to set up the Newquay Christmas market, right? They've they've got all the stall holders ready. Everyone's excited. So lots of, you know, young entrepreneurs and then they're making their Christmas candles or whatever it is they're going to sell. And then before they put them up, someone stole the sheds that they were going to use for the Christmas oh, market. Oh, that's very un Christmassy and uncharitable. <laughs> Yeah, so they've had to cancel it because oh. they couldn't get enough um, sheds back together in time to hold it again. And what? I was utterly appalled. Wood is quite expensive at the moment. That probably tells you something historical. Yeah. Anyway, it made me think a little about theft at this time of year. And I thought, oh, yeah, well, this, theft is always an important part of, 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 you know, giving and people leaving and forgetting things and, and things being stolen as well. And um, and also, I wanted to see what the Bible had to say about that, because uh, if we're thinking about the, the religious themes. And so we can find out about, you know, the ancient Middle East. That's part of the joy of the Bible. Um, use it as a as a source which which tells you about life in the ancient Middle East. And so you can get a sense of what was going on with um, criminal punishment in relation to theft. Um, and it's quite interesting because it's to do with civil equity, right? Evening things up rather than punishment, though, of course, in some instances, the um, the retribution kind of imposed on a crime of theft is probably it's so significant that it ends up being penal. It ends up being a punishment. Anyway, uh, to steal and slaughter an ox demands five in return. A sheep, four. A stolen animal recovered alive demands twofold restitution. So even if you get it back, you, the, the other person has to pay you two. A thief caught stealing from a depository makes twofold restitution. If he escapes, the depository must swear his innocence before God. Disputed ownership of stolen property is judged by God, either by ordeal, oracle or swearing. And the guilty one pays twofold. Now, those are the only ones I could find uh, mentioned in the Bible. Unfortunately, James, there is no mention of sheds. So I was wondering how many sheds they would have to pay back for those baddies stealing the sheds in Cornwall. What do you think? What do you reckon the going rate I in think six, the ancient Middle six, East of the six, shed is? Six sheds and lose a thumb. Six sheds and lose a thumb. It's definitely got to be worse than an ox, hasn't it? Yes, definitely. The, the ox was, yeah, Chris, a Christmas shed. 
Um, anyway, just what I want to finish up by mentioning, um, you know, markets in general and, and how wonderful they are as, as a chance to see... I think they're very revealing about the real nature of a place. My favourite ones I've gone to are the markets in Turpan and Khotan, or Khotan, which are in the far west of China in Xinjiang. Um, very important southern branches of the historic the, the, the Silk Road. And um, both of them, both based oases there and very multicultural, um, huge Uyghur populations. And... Um, one of my favourite memories of travelling there and, and researching and studying was um, going to the market in Khotan, where they make this wonderful stuff called Atlas Silk. And this is all made by Uyghurs. So Uyghurs are Muslims. Um, and even though the Chinese are trying to very much impose the fact that it is Han Chinese there, all you need to do is to rock up at the market. And I remember uh, being there and filming and being surrounded by, I don't know, a hundred Uyghur children um, and talking to their parents about the making of Atlas silk and then eating the wonderful the wonderful food that they make there. It was all uh, truly fantastic. And maybe just think about how how revealing and sort of true a market is. You want to get a sense of a place where there is more than one one political power around. Go to the market and um, and you get a, get a sense of it there. So I just want to end by pointing out that, you know, I think markets are actually really important. I think they help you understand the history of the world. Um, thinking about big themes coming together, cultural sharing, similarities, differences of cultures, all hugely important themes uh, to enjoy uh, at Christmas. And one final point, James. Um, uh, I, I do happen to know that you have a, a, a an illness in your house where the COVID has come into your house. And I think we're all going to associate COVID, Christmas and markets um, for, for many, many years to come because it was... Two years ago now, uh, in December, where where the first case of COVID was identified in in, uh, in Wuhan, and so many of those early cases linked with the wet market, which then led to all sorts of um, fairly unreasonable uh, um, images of wet markets being um, shown all around the world without um, any kind of editing or filtration of the different the many different types of wet markets that there are in China and in fact all over Asia and I think that's led to a, a huge growth of sinophobia um, which we particularly saw break out in America uh, around around Christmas and the new year of 2019. So markets for actually I think um, very important in history in the past and are going to be of growing importance in the future. Oh, Sam Willis, that was an extraordinary tour de force. I have two two points to make. One is that markets are all about gloves, uh, <laughs> because medieval mar- the sign of opening of a medieval market would be to uh, put up a glove on a long pole, and it symbolised the opening of the market, and when you took it down, the market was closed. Uh, a, one slight uh, bar humbug about uh, extra market. I love it. It's terrific. My children get so excited, but I did pay £12 for two hot chocolates the other day it is oh. just the 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 markup on the markets is extraordinary but that leads me into into food and i wanted to end today with christmas and food because for me the festive season is all about hunter gathering it's going out and it's uh, it it's cooking and for weeks beforehand i'm planning 
meals. I order my turkey as soon as I'm able to order my turkey. And may I recommend a an easy carve uh, turkey from Darts Farm in Devon, which is wonderful. I saw them... Uh, I saw them prepare them uh, in a masterclass one year and just and never went back. It's an extraordinary feat, um, crisscrossed with wonderful bacon. Anyway, we've talked about food in the past. We've talked in previous Christmas episodes about Christmas at the Tudor Court. What I have for you now is a an early Tudor shopping list for Christmas. And it comes from a wonderful collection of letters that I've talked to you about before, the Lyle Letters, edited by the brilliantly named Muriel St. Clair Byrne. A six-volume edition can be purchased online at vast, vast, uh, for vast sums. I think I paid several hundred pounds for mine, but it was well, well worth it because I dip into it all the time. It's about these family who are based in Calais. Uh, they are cousins of the King, of Henry VIII, and... They were, I think the reason that we have them is basically because Lord Lyle, who's the Lord Deputy of Calais, um, is accused of treason. And so all of the family papers, all of the family letters are confiscated. And so they end up in the in the state papers and they've been beautifully edited. And there are some wonderful characters. I love uh, the character Lady Lyle, who's his 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 long-suffering wife, uh, and their their man of business, John Hussey, who, while they are in Calais, he's always off in London transacting on their behalf. And so there's a, a rich stream of correspondence that crosses the English Channel. And I have a letter in front of me, uh, dated the 19th of December, 1537, to Lady Lyle, a Lady Lyle, from this said John Hussey. Uh, and I'll just give you a little sort of taster of it. Pleaseth it your ladyship to be advertised that with this bearer, John Scarlet, master of this hoy, whereof is owner John Lorden of London, I do send, packed in a sugar chest, the proportion of spices which Bond delivered me at my departing from Calais. The particulars with their prices I do send your ladyship here enclosed. For the freight the master must be satisfied as your ladyship shall think meet. I pray, Jesu, send the same to you in safety. The weather hath been very boisterous. And so he goes on. Um, but what's interesting, uh, he signs himself... Uh, by your ladyship's own man, John Hussey, from St Catherine's, the 19th of December. What's interesting is that attached to this letter, or enclosed with it, is this list of spices, all sorts of things that they're buying. It's dated uh, 1537, the 9th day of December, and it includes, uh, get this, it includes 40 pounds of sugar, fine sugar, uh, uh, it includes 40 pounds of middle sugar, uh, four pounds of cinnamon, uh, a pound of mace, uh, four pounds of ginger, 20 pounds of pepper, two pounds of dried nutmeg, three pounds of licorice. Um, it's also got four pounds of aniseed. And then it's got uh, six pounds of saunders. Saunders is a kind of red sandalwood. So it's a sort of medieval spice. It's also got four pounds of isinglass. And isinglass is a gelatin formed from fish. It's then got 20 pounds of raisins, 10 pounds of dates, two pounds of prunes, uh, six pounds of clothes and a great rice apiece. 
uh, as well. And it's all in a in a big chest and then has been popped onto the ship. And the cost of this is quite extraordinary for the period. It is uh, it is um, twelve pounds and twelve shillings. Sorry, I'm, I'm translating the Roman numerals. What's extraordinary here is that what we have here is a snapshot of the spice list that would be used in a house to make all of the feast for Christmas. You can see here, you've talked earlier on, Sam, about the importance of markets. What we can see here is the importance of trade. These are often foreign fruits that are coming across, foreign spices connected to the spice road that we're seeing in the early 16th century coming across and being part and parcel of what they're what they're talking about of what they're looking at what they're going to be cooking um so that i from this uh early early henrician or henry early shopping list from henry the eighth i've also been uh been perusing through uh, other christmas books that i've got including uh, mark forsyth's a christmas cornucopia the hidden stories behind our yule tried traditions and i was looking for other things connected to uh, christmas feasting and on page 112 he mentions a 17th century book called the accomplished cook uh, which lays out very clearly uh, what you need to give your guests for christmas dinner and get this sam willis a collar of brawn stewed broth of mutton marrow bones, a grand salad, a pottage of caponets, a breast of veal, a boiled partridge, a sheen of beef or sirloin roast, mince pies, a gigot of mutton with anchovy sauce, a made dish of sweetbread, a swan roast, a pasty of venison, a kid with a pudding in his belly, a steak pie, a haunch of venison roasted, a turkey roast and stuck with cloves, a made dish of chicken in puff pastry, two brant geese roasted one larded and a custard <laughs> and apparently this was just the first course and the second <laughs> included quails six tame pigeons three turkeys so you know very very uh, meat heavy and what does what does christmas dinner look like in the modern day and i don't know whether you have um whether you have seen heinz's christmas dinner big soup that they have produced this year for the first no. time, priced one pound fifty, and it's supposed to have absolutely everything that you would have for a Christmas dinner in one can. And I read the other day; I haven't dared taste it yet, but I read the other day a wonderful article in the Guardian where they were going through reviewing all of the Christmassy flavoured foods. So these are all the sort of the kinds of sort of processed foods that have been flavoured to taste like Christmas. So, you know, turkey stuffing crisps and that kind of thing. Anyway, this was reviewed uh, by somebody called Stuart Heritage. Uh, wonderful name, Stuart Heritage. It's like being John History. Um, and <laughs> he... <laughs> I just wanted to read this because it made me laugh so much. This is his review. Uh, this, meanwhile, is a travesty. It is a tinned soup that contains turkey, stuffing balls, potatoes, Brussels sprouts and pigs in blankets. And not to be indelicate, it looks like fresh sewage. It smells bad. I can't accurately describe the mouthfeel because I have never had to swallow contraband human organs to sell on the black market. It tastes like punishment, 
Heinz, you invented the precise opposite of Christmas. It is genuinely impossible to eat this nightmare without even a trace of festivity in your body. Merry Christmas to nobody. How nice is it? <laughs> how, how, much, how, how much like Christmas dinner is it? <laughs> Zero out of five. Well, I will not be tucking well, into uh, that big, big, big Christmas dinner soup. No, 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 um, no. And this podcast is sponsored by Heinz. <laughs> I'm sure it's delicious. I'm sure it's delicious. <laughs> Thank you all, guys, so much for listening. That's our little introduction to uh, Christmas and the various Christmas themes, um, of which we could you could rip out so many from what we've talked about today. And we're going to come back with our special focused, first focused Christmas one of the year um, soon, and it's going to be on the history of donkeys. And I can't wait. Be back in touch soon. But um, please, if you want to see what we're doing follow us on social media i'm at dr sam willis and if you're interested in maritime and naval history do please check out the mariner's mirror podcast and i'm on twitter at james daybell we are also on instagram and we are on facebook so check us out there we also have a website historiesoftheunexpected.com where you can see all the things that we've been up to and our back catalogue and importantly because it is almost christmas you can buy signed copies of our five books uh, which make great stocking fillers uh, also if you'd like to sponsor the podcast uh, become a patron head over to patreon.com where we have an account and anything that you can do to support what we're doing with history uh, would be very much appreciated meanwhile uh, enjoy the run-up to christmas everyone absolutely guys have fun uh, we'll be back again soon bye-bye bye, -bye. bye.